Hello, everyone, and welcome to ESIP's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Eriksson, and today I am speaking to Frank Lavin. Frank has been on this podcast before, and he's an old friend. He has had a long career in American administrations. He was the political director in Reagan's White House and during the second Bush administration in the noughties. He was the Deputy Secretary of Commerce, leading many of the negotiations that the United States had with China on different type of economic matters. And the subject for today is China. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Frederick. Glad to be here with you. So I want us to talk about China and, of course, the obvious theme for a conversation about China is that um, a few days ago, when we were recording this, China ended its um, party congress and uh, President Xi Jinping was uh, again appointed to a new period as being uh, chairman of uh, the Communist Party and, of course, leading China in the next five years. So, Frank, I mean, you are a close China watcher. You have business interests uh, connected to China as well. When you followed the party congress, did you did you learn anything new about China's overall direction? No, Frederick. In fact, I think the goal of the party congress is no surprises. I think what it is, they're doing is they're reaffirming or restating their policies. They're applauding themselves and taking credit for uh, the good news that there might be in China. Uh, but there's not really any surprises that are unveiled at these kind of events. I think a lot of people were closely following the extent to which there was going to be any signal coming from Xi Jinping or from others about China's relation to Taiwan. Um, We have seen over the past couple of years that Chinese sensitivities around these issues have grown. Uh, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan a couple of months ago, and that led to a pretty furious reaction from, from China itself. What, what's the cause uh, on, on, on these matters, do you think, from the Chinese viewpoints? Is the policy still that, what was it, by 2040 or by 2050, that Taiwan is going to be reunited with the mainland? Or do you think that they want to accelerate any ambition they have about Taiwan rejoining the mainland in the same fashion as they basically got control over Hong Kong? Well, I, I don't know if they do uh, want to accelerate that, but they certainly see some benefit in making that suggestion that we can move anytime we want. We're prepared to do what we need to do. So they're definitely forward leaning and they are more sensitive to Taiwan uh, issues now than they have been historically. Al- although most of what they said was pretty consistent and they, all their comments about eventual unification are, are comments that onlookers are pretty familiar with. I think there's at least two drivers, though, that are going on. One is that Taiwan has become increasingly a domestic political issue in China, in the Chinese Communist Party, and that if you aspire to senior leadership position in the party, you must assert that you will deal capably with the Taiwan issue and you will safeguard China's claim to Taiwan. So that so that lends itself to stridency and even military drills and all sorts of activity to make the point. That's one. The second thing that's happened is there has been a shift in mood in Taiwan over the past decade or so, which is to say the the opposition party, the DPP, is pretty well ensconced. They've long had uh, independent orientation or independent leanings, although they 
haven't explicitly called for it once they've been in office, but that raises the possibility of a Taiwan independence greater than it's ever been raised in recent history. And what's your take on the Biden administration's communication on Taiwan? Um, what we've seen recently is perhaps um, announcements that amount to constructive ambiguity with um, statements that U.S. strategic policy remains the same as done in the past. At the same time, we've heard from the president that the United States is definitely prepared to defend Taiwan in the event that it's going to be attacked. So where do, where do you think the United States stand on this issue now? Well, I, I do think a little bit of ambiguity is uh, helpful. On the one hand, uh, we want to send a message, we Americans want to send a message to mainland China not to try military invasion, that it won't end up well for them if they do. So that's an important part of what President Biden is saying. But the other point, the ambiguity side of that is we want to be careful about a moral hazard. We don't want to give Taiwan a blank check. We don't want to induce reckless behavior on their part. And we want to make sure that they're increasing their military capabilities as well. I mean, one of the lessons from Ukraine is there's a huge payoff in having a ready military. And Ukraine spent 10 years training with U.S. and NATO members to get a first-class military. Taiwan needs to make that same kind of commitment. All right. So let's go back to the part of Congress again. Um, I mean, you said initially that this was perhaps not a, an occasion where we're going to hear new policy announcements from President Xi or from anyone else. But um, when it comes to economic issues, was there something coming out of it which suggests that um, China may be reorienting itself in, in its economic policies, whether it's going to be sort of doubling down on its overall uh, industrial policy, if it wants to sort of push more friction into the world economy by trying to call for rules changes that remake the global economy in, its, in, in China's image? I think it's more the latter, Frederick. I think they're more doubling down, that they've always believed in state intervention, whether it's sort of classical industrial policy or their, their Marxist heritage, but they, they believe very strongly in these government ministries, iron and steel ministries that actually run the, the, the steel mills. Uh, so they're not backing off of that, uh, despite the enormous success of market economics. But it's there's something seductive about uh, e economic interventionism that I think has a hold over their imagination. So I think we're likely to see more of that. And I think that's one reason why immediately after the Congress was over, some of the U.S. listed Chinese stocks uh, went down. But then there's less confidence in economic management after the Congress than there was before the Congress. And there has been several occasions over the past year where we've seen at least the beginnings of different ruptions in the Chinese economy. We had sort of flare-ups around the real estate sector um, just a year ago or so. And looking at the broad sort of economic landscape in China, we can still see that there are a couple of pretty strong imbalances in the economy that may become difficult to manage if the entire global economy is weakening as we see it's doing right now. I mean, there are lots of countries that are uh, at risk of seeing financial markets or others that are going to lose confidence in, in their overall fiscal policies and overall macroeconomic policies. Now, China is in a better position, like, for instance, the United Kingdom when it comes to these issues. But, but do you think, I mean, is there, is there a sort of a growing alarm inside 
government quarters in Beijing that they may be in for a very rough economic period and that, that this may have consequences for political stability in China. Well, uh, one part of that I think they're definitely aware of, and that's the deterioration in their political relations with the United States and Europe. So they talk about a dual circulation model, one side being domestic economy, one side being the international economy. And the point is that they're, they're keenly aware that that international connectivity is susceptible to political risk and, and political volatility. So they want to do what they can to reduce dependence on that international linkages and increase the domestic circulation of the economy. So that part, political risk, I do think they take on board where they might, it's a little unclear what they think of is the other side of that, which is just general economic uh, success or lack thereof, meaning are they aware that there's a risk factor in Chinese economic policies? Are they aware that uh, the world might be on the cusp of a recession or economic softening? It's un- it's unclear how much of that they take on board. And what about sort of the perceptions around growth rates? I mean, we have seen, of course, a clear deceleration of economic growth in China over a couple of years now, amplified, of course, by the pandemic and the lockdowns in, in, in China. Previously, there was sort of an, an underlying assumption that if growth rates was going to fall significantly in China, it would lead to political unrest and perhaps that more people in the country would voice opposition to uh, to the leadership. Um, now, growth rates are pretty poor. And if you if your Chinese economy with the type of inequality that you have in that country, a 3% growth rate is going to mean that a lot of people are, are not going to be well off. I mean, they, they're going to be worse off and they're going to see that their living standards are going to go down. Is, is this still sort of this underlying assumption? Is it still valid? Do you think there is a, a, an economic limit for uh, wh- when you will start to see changes in, in, in the system itself that may cause instability for the Communist Party? Well, first of all, I think your premise is, is spot on. I think that they're going to see slow growth rates this year and slow growth rates next year. Now, they might rationalize some of this by saying it's COVID. It's not us. It's a global phenomenon, and it's putting downward pressure on all these economies. That That is certainly true, but I don't think that explains the entire story. So, it, but, but my point is it could be several years of slow growth before they come to terms with maybe those days of 6 7 8% growth are, are in the past, and we're now at 3% growth. Uh, going forward, because there's a level of maturity in the economy. There's some other uh, disruptions in the economy, like the real estate bubble, maybe some misallocation of resources. So 3% is all that can be gotten at this point. But I, I don't think that's front and center in their thinking. I think what they're more likely to say now is COVID has harmed the world. China is part of that uh, situation, and it's just going to be a while before it straightens out and we're back to normal. So they're some, somewhat in denial. And, and what about China's international economic policies? I mean, there's been much discussion about that over the years, of course. A lot of people asking themselves what China's grand strategy is. Now, it may not have a grand strategy. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. But I suppose they also, I mean, they're being forced to come up with policies now with United States, for instance, are pushing them and has been pushing China on trade issues for quite some time, perhaps in a in a poorly managed way, uh, the Europeans are introducing a lot 
of new type of policies that will have the effect of making life a lot harder for Chinese exporters to Europe. So how do you, how do you see China reacting to that type of situation? Look, China's had increasingly effective international presence, just growing on a steady basis over several decades now. But in the last decade under Xi Jinping, they went further than they've ever gone before. They launched the Belt and Road Initiative, which is helping funding and support infrastructure projects in its immediate neighborhood. And they also launched a lot of trade initiatives where they struck free trade agreements with ASEAN countries, for example, and other nations as well. So they've been reasonably forward-leaning in uh, international economic activity, cultivating friends and cultivating stronger economic relations. China is now the number one trading partner of more nations than the United States is, even though the United States is still the larger economy. And how do you think America is going to sort of design its policy against China going forward? Are we going to see more of the same, meaning that sort of the Trump tariffs against China will remain, that we're going to see more and more strategic restrictions, like, for instance, what we've seen recently on semiconductor production and help or uh, having U.S. human capital involved in, in producing semiconductors in, in China. Will we see more of these type of, of, of strategic operations from America, which is, is going to have probably a, a pretty significant effect on Chinese domestic autonomous capability to be quick yeah. in developing new high-tech industries? Well, in, in several important geopolitical channels, Biden's Asia policy has been uh, similar to Trump's or built on Trump's, meaning the Quad initiative, the four-power ministerial consultative body with uh, U.S., Japan, India, and Australia, started under Trump and taken up to ministerial level and even president premier level under Biden. So that's, I think, on the right track. And the other initiative of Biden was AUKUS, the Australia, uh, US, UK uh, nuclear submarine program for Australia, which helps integrate US and the UK into uh, Australia uh, defense security uh, activity. So that's a step ahead as well. The other interesting activity is that Biden did not unwind Trump's tariffs. He kept those in place. So we still have that point of friction in front of us. And finally, I would note a comment you just made that Biden decided just recently that he's going to uh, sanction China on uh, chips, advanced chips, and forbid the sale of China to those chips. And I think that's going to put some downward pressure on some of their higher engineering and military applications over maybe up to a decade or so. All right. So um, let's let's go back a little bit to foreign policy. So I mean, for many Europeans who are watching China and political development in China right now, I mean, one question they obviously will ask themselves is, so what is China up to when it comes to relation with Russia? So I ask that question to you, Frank. What's China up to with Russia? It's a little unclear because we can see that China saw some advantage if the U.S. was tricked up in supporting Ukraine. If Putin was successful in uh, his invasion with Ukraine, that would be embarrassing to the U.S., it would be humiliating to Europe, and it would show the other Asian countries that there's very little value in being a friend to the U.S., that the U.S. has uh, just doesn't have the military capability or the quickness to respond to an emergency 
and, and China is the better partner. So I think that was the hope that it would be a quick and easy win for Russia and it would really humiliate the U.S. That, of course, is not what's happened. Now it's quite an embarrassment for uh, Russia. I think some of that embarrassment washes up on China as well. They did give Putin an open-ended embrace. I don't think there's any way they can easily extricate themselves from this. My guess is they've signaled their unhappiness to Putin. We saw that tape uh, of Putin at the uh, Shanghai Cooperative Organization uh, meeting where he was a little bit uh, apologetic toward China. But I think, I think they've got to see it through to the end, uh, all the while they hope not to inflame things or send, send more encouraging signals to Putin. So this looks to me like a miscalculation. They gave Putin an open-ended embrace, and he took that and turned it into a war, and now China's part of uh, the consequences of that. Uh, so so uh, it, it's not helping their relationships with the U.S. or with Europe. And do you think that there was a grander geopolitical or strategic reflection behind that move in China as well. Um, what I mean is, I mean, a lot of commentators, especially in America and Europe, have um, suggested that China spotted an opportunity to create an alliance with another anti-West or anti-US power with military capabilities that that are pretty strong, especially on the nuclear front. But in that sort of grander scheme of things, they also thought there was an opportunity here to uh, have a junior partner, a submissive partner that gradually would become more dependent on China and that China gradually was going to be able to control this junior partner in a way that would um, help China's own strategic missions for, for its role in the world. Was there ever... A grand strategy like that, or was it yeah, more sort I, of? I, uh, I think that take. I think that take probably overstates it. I think this was like a momentary. Uh, this was opportunism. This is uh, Putin wants to give Ukraine a punch in the nose. The United States is going to be caught flat-footed. Europe be caught flat-footed, and China, by endorsing Putin, will get some reflected benefits from Putin's victory. So I don't think it was necessarily a grand strategy about here's a new alliance and, and Russia's going to be the junior partner, I think they just simply said, we'll, we'll help you out. If you're going to go on this expedition, we'll help you out on this, and we come out looking good if we're on the winning side and U.S. is on the losing side. And that's that's probably as far as their thinking went. It turned out to be inaccurate, of course, but, but it might have looked very attractive before it started. And I suppose from a Chinese point of view as well, I mean, there has been a couple of pretty big strategic losses for them uh, as a consequence of their embrace of Vladimir Putin and sort of indirect support for the war. Uh, what I'm thinking about is that a lot of governments and a lot of countries around the world now are having second thoughts about their own relationship to China. And I don't think that was what China actually wanted to achieve. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this was completely gratuitous. They didn't, China didn't need to get involved with this thing. It has, you future of Ukraine has nothing to do with China. China always had stable, positive relations with Ukraine, as you would expect. And there's no there's no dog in that fight. So why they chose to jump in on this doesn't reflect well on them. And I think you're also right with your conclusion that a lot of countries around the world are saying, what what is China doing sort of endorsing this military activity? The world doesn't need any more invasions. And so we don't get excited about countries that say, open-ended endorsement of uh, military activity like China did. 
And is there any opportunity at all for course correction in China on this particular point? I publicly, they have to be skittish of that because they can't ever publicly admit they made a mistake. But I think privately with Putin, they've probably drawn some lines. They probably said, look, we'll supply energy that you need and we can supply with food if you need, but we, we can't really supply military weaponry or anything that is sole purpose military. Maybe they give some trucks or something that are dual use, but, they, but they're going to be circumspect, I think, now that they don't need to embrace them anymore publicly. But I don't, but I don't think we'll see a public course correction. One issue which is, or one speculation that is uh, doing the rounds in European capitals concerns what China is going to communicate to Moscow on the issue of the use of uh, nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, for um, some time now, there's been this growing fear that Russia may actually start to use nuclear weapons in its war against Ukraine. But what do you, what do you reckon... Uh, well, Beijing would communicate to Moscow ahead of that. Well, I can tell you this. I don't know what evidence or what the basis is of U.S. supposition, and NATO said the same thing, that Russia might be planning to use uh, some kind of uh, radioactive device and blame it on Ukraine. I think part of that supposition is the statements the Russians themselves have made that out of nowhere they've said, boy, if Ukraine does this, it's a terrorist attack. Nobody, no, Ukraine, I don't think has the capability to do it. Has never discussed it. And why would why would any country set off a, a radioactive device on its own territory and irradiate its own people, its own cities? Is defies logic. Uh, so there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, at least, that says this this cannot be true as Russia is describing it. And maybe Russia itself is planning on setting off device. I'll tell you this: if if the United States has any evidence or something beyond pure conjecture, we would typically send a senior level emissary, say cabinet level, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, National Security Advisor to China to present that evidence, to say, here's what we know, here's what we're looking at. We think it's a calamity if Russia uses any kind of nuclear device. China's got some involvement with this indirectly with this open endorsement. We think it's very much in China's interest to communicate to Russia that you don't want to see them set off a nuclear device. So I think we would make a direct representation to China to hold their feet to the fire on this and suggest they call Moscow pronto to let them know what we think. I, d I don't know if that, that might be taking place. I don't know. Um, who knows? So let's, Frank, um, end this, this podcast talking a little bit about Europe and um and Europe's view of China and where China is going, and especially what sort of um, uh, strategic policy direction that Europe should take vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. As, as we've discussed, I think the, the war and China's reaction to the war has caused um, a lot of suspicion in, in European capitals that China may not be a reliable partner uh, in economic affairs um, in the same fashion it's been in the past. There is increasing talk about weaning Europe off its uh, strategic dependence on different goods or minerals or raw materials from China. S some people are making a, the broader claim that we need to cut our dependencies pretty thoroughly and devise a policy which is much more protectionist against China, leading to reshoring and a lot of manufacturing production moving back to Europe. 
other people are saying that, well, this is just impossible. We are we have sort of an extraordinarily big trade and economic relationship with China. And if you try to do anything to disrupt that one, it's going to have strong negative economic consequences for Europe itself. So how, how do we balance these type of um, economic and national security type of interest? Is there a way to balance them in, in a way that makes the trading relationship manageable in the future with China? I, I think so. I, I would say, I, I mean, talking about balance, I would say in terms of Europe's exposure to China, I wouldn't do anything directly to degrade that. I wouldn't pursue a decoupling strategy or order companies out or tell them not to invest. Many are trying to diversify themselves for commercial reasons. There's a practice in business called concentration risk where you have too much activity in one market, then you're at risk of there's a disruption. So it behooves behooves somebody who's selling 80% of their product into China to try to develop other markets, or it behooves somebody who's sourcing 80% of their product from China to try to develop other sources. So I think a lot of that is taking place through normal business activity. The one the one advice I would give to friends in Europe is it's in Europe interest to cultivate as many options as possible, to cultivate as many markets as possible and as many uh, options and economic arrangements as possible. And to that end, the one missing uh, piece of the puzzle that you could strive for would be the US-EU free trade agreement to make it as easy as possible for people and businesses in those two markets to work with the other market that at least takes some of the attraction away from China. It, it diminishes China a little bit in terms of a target or a place of activity, and it makes the Western markets that much more attractive to each other. So I think at the margin, at least, that gives Europe a little more option, and it takes a little bit uh, less focus on uh, China. So that, w- that would be my one recommendation to friends in Brussels. All right, Frank, thank you very much for this conversation. As always, very interesting to talk to you and uh, listen to Uh, your observations and your analysis. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Frederick. It's always a lot of fun to chat with you. It's great to be back in Brussels. Thank you.